Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to tabletop game design. This episode has been made possible thanks to the excellent folks behind Breakout Con 2017 in Toronto, Ontario. Episode 111, Being a Great Player. Recorded at Breakout Con 2017. Presented by Emily Griggs, Jason Pitt, Mo Turkington, and Chris Chung. Moderated by Corey Reed. Okay, so uh, we're talking today about what makes a great player and what great players are able to contribute to a game. We've got a variety of perspectives on our panel today. I'll let everybody introduce themselves. Uh, but we have uh, tabletop game designers, LARP designers, uh, board game designers, uh, and probably people who play games too. <laughs> Throw that out there. Uh, I play games. Uh, I watch people play games. Um, yeah, so I'm going to just start on my, uh, that's my left here with yeah. Emily. Uh, yeah, my name is Emily Griggs. I am a tabletop game designer and illustrator. I play games significantly more often than I run games, which I feel sets me kind of at odds because there's all these really great GMs running games, uh, or writing games. So I, um, I really like talking about the other side of the table and what they contribute to the same experience because both sides are super important. And your company's called Sweet Ingenuity, is yeah, it? Yeah, Sweet Ingenuity is my sort of writing illustration company, online brand thing. thing. Awesome. And did you win some award for an amazing game? Did I? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I made not want to talk about um, Yeah, I do a few indie games. I won the Game Chef game design contest a couple years ago, and then did another game this year, or 2016, that got a finalist position. Fantastic. Uh, my name is Jason Pitt from Genesis of Legend Publishing. I'm uh, one of the founding members of the Indie Game Developer Network. Uh, published a series of games uh, based out of Ottawa. Uh, I run a podcast with these kinds of panel recordings all the time. And I just generally spend far too much time thinking about games uh, and the social interactions at the table that make it fun for everyone. Didn't you win some sort of award? Now it's turned. We're also um, I'm sorry. That's all right. Um, my name is Chris. Um, Chris Chong. Um, my claim to fame is Lanterns to Harvest Festival. I guess I'm a one-hit wonder at this point. But I still <laughs> uh, and I yes, I did win an award. So Lanterns won the Mensa Award. I've uh, been on Table Talk Season 4, first uh, episode. Um, yeah, continuing making games. Uh, unlike Emily, I'm more making more games than I'm playing games, so that's a, I guess, a part of my career choice. But yes, more games need to be played by me. Hi, and I'm Mo Turkington. I'm the Arena Design House called Unruly Designs, um, and I am the curator and um, uh, contributor to the Warbirds Anthology, which is a collection of freeform and tabletop games. Uh, sorry, freeform and LARP games around the. Uh, Contributions of women in World War II. Um, I play a lot of games. I primarily design LARPs and freeform tabletop games, um, but I play a lot of RPGs too and board games and those kind of things. Awesome. Didn't you win a bunch of awards? 
<laughs> I, I too am a, a, I'm a game chefer, but uh, so long ago it dates me. Um, and I've won a couple of awards. <laughs> yes, question. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. So a couple of notes on how we're going to proceed. Uh, we all kind of worked together and came up with some questions that I have written down on index cards that I will be throwing at them whenever they run out of things to talk about. I have more index cards with nothing written on them and I have a pen. And Alexander here is going to help. If a question comes up for you while we're talking, get Alexander's attention. He will bring the cards and the pen to you. You can write your question on the card. Give the card and the pen back to him and he'll bring the card up to me and I'll put it in my little stack and we'll uh, put it into part of the conversation. Okay. The, the goal here is that we don't have to stop the conversation and then have a Q&A piece. You folks can just be part of the conversation without having to interrupt anything. Okay? Yeah. So just whenever you have a question... Just raise your hand high. I'm in the back. Yeah. I'll see it. I'll come and Alexander will come and uh, allow you to get your question in. Okay? All right. So uh, our first question to the panel, pretty basic, but uh, can we talk a little bit about what makes a great player? I'm just going to throw that open to the group and, uh, yeah, go for it. Um, I guess there's a lot of ways to define a great player. You can define a player who wins a lot. You can define a player who plays the most games. But for the purposes of this panel, I was thinking about a player who improves the experience for everyone. You can have a player who's very good at understanding the game and um, creating their own experience with the, the game, but I think what sort of elevates a, a player from a, a really good player to a really great player is their ability to just sort of contribute to the game experience for the entire table. Um, from where I'm standing, I view games as inherently ephemeral experiences. There are things that happen for a short period of time and then fade. The really good games with the really great players are ones that you remember for days, weeks, months, years later. Uh, and I think being a great player is someone who brings and enables those kinds of games that stay with you. Um, everything from putting humor in a tense situation uh, so that people are able to break the tension to having something that's emotionally vulnerable in a time uh, when that's difficult. Anything that um, we remember and captures our memories and our emotions later on, I think that's the hallmark of a great player. Yeah, definitely what these two people said. Like, great points by both of them. Um, what Jason uh, specifically mentioned was the memorable... Uh, experiences from tabletop experience to one another. So being as someone who's into board games, usually those experiences are contained within the box. But then you have the long games that really make an impact now, so like Pandemic Legacy or any of the um, uh, diplomacy-like games where those experiences may actually affect the next game over because do may, hey, you screwed me up in diplomacy. Do I really want to trust you in this next game that we're playing? But at the same time, if you're playing Pandemic Legacy, you're going to be like, okay, maybe we screwed up January, but we can continue on February. There's no telling what we could do. So definitely being a great player, uh, it comes from within yourself, but also it develops with the, every game you play. And hopefully I can continue to make games that evoke that same great player experience. Um, for me, I think um, 
a, a great player has presence, and, and what I mean by that, a presence is the key to a great player. Uh, and what I mean by that is, um, is being in the moment of play, um, being with your other people, paying mindful attention to the things they're bringing to the table, bringing mindful attention to the way that you're reacting to them, um, being with them as people first, and then part of a fiction second. Um, a lot of the games that I write and play are often emotional, serious topic games. And uh, it also means, from a presence perspective, being there to support people through that experience and come out better at the end or more bonded at the end. Um, and then also, I think presence is a, your outward presence in the course of play, especially in a LARP perspective, bringing it out from that internal state and letting other people see how you react to their play. Uh, I think is a really core component of of making people see be seen and validated over the course of what they're bringing to the game, and they're just going to bring that right back to you. I want to uh, so just everybody kind of the general theme there of sort of being aware of what's happening and being supportive of the other players, and that's something that's really important for a great experience. I want to just twist that a little bit. To what degree does a great player need to challenge other players? Is that a piece of it as well? I think, if I can jump in on that, uh, I think challenging other players um, can be part of it. It partly depends on what the other player needs. You're going to have situations where what another player needs, especially in sort of an experienced player who's gone at this for a bit, what they really need is more hooks, more things to sort of sink into and play around, so more challenges for their character. But then you're also going to have players who might be a little bit more shy or a little bit more new to that, and what they need is ways to get into the game. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be challenges, but that can also be intimidating. But you could also it could also be something like um, putting your character forward as like I'm related to your character now, like we have this relationship, and I'm establishing that with my character because I've got the experience to kind of come up with those sorts of hooks for us together. So I think whether you need to support other people and sort of lift them up, or whether you need to challenge them so they can kind of fight back and you can create a narrative that way, is really going to depend on what the other player needs. Sure. And a really great player is the kind of person who can identify very quickly what the other players at the table need to make the story best for everyone. What you say reminds me of what uh, Moira mentioned about yeah. being vulnerable. And, and that can be both challenging and supportive. Absolutely. I, I would also add... Um, and in as much as paying attention to what the other person needs, it's also what the environment of the game needs. Oh, yeah. The game has a different, you know, uh, if I'm playing a really serious game, then vulnerability is a huge component of it. If I'm playing a high-spirited game where it's expected that we're going to have, you know, dueling sword fights, yeah. then bringing challenges is absolutely going to be part of, bringing narrative challenges is absolutely going to be part of it, too. Reading the narrative, reading what the narrative needs. And then reading the table and figuring out yeah. what other people need. I guess from a board game perspective, I know that. So, when it comes to game to game, you're thinking about in the situation, can I challenge myself to play better? I guess, but that brings in the competitive spirit for all players. So, if you come from one game like Lanterns, where it's all peaceful, everyone gets a lantern on their turn. That's excellent, right? But when you switch over to something more cutthroat, like Cutthroat Caverns, now you switch on a whole different mindset but you're raising the bar for yourself to either continue winning or to start making challenging plays for other, your opponents in order to make your game nights run smoother and better. I've run into, uh, if I can jump on you, sure. I've run into some amazing board game players who are willing to 
sort of step back from winning the game exactly. and step forward into making it an experience for everyone, especially when players are learning a board game. Yeah. And I think that's an amazing quality that a player can have. I need to uh, play with those people you play with. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, within the board game realm, specifically, does a good player start beating up the person who's last place? I mean, it comes with the territory in some games. Some days you really can't say, okay, I'm going to wash the floor with you guys kind of thing. Um, and that happens. But some um, games where there is a, an apparent leader in the game, so maybe they ease the brakes off just a little bit if they want to keep the game kind of that momentum keep flowing. But it's been rare when I play games like that. I, I'm thinking, sorry, I, I was thinking specifically someone in second place. Oh, in second place. Ooh. They're, they're taking down the leader. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, they're uh, punching up. Maybe second place would be a different dichotomy than last place, but uh, I can see that in some games where you want to like inch up closer to closer than the lead, but the leader's going to be like, oh, I, uh, I kind of uh, jumped the bar. But you get, you get games like Y first, where actually second place gets you to win. So <laughs> it's different for each game. That, that just sounds like another thing where reading the table yeah. is going to make such a huge difference because more important than actually winning the game or who wins the game is making sure the game night actually is a lot of fun for everyone, exactly. at least from my perspective. Does competitiveness draw something else out in terms of making a game fun for everybody, being a great player? I think so. Um, especially when you get to, to those games where it's like a head-down Euro, you're playing for two and a half hours, you're like deep in thought and everyone's making several integral choices at once. So a game like... Um, uh, let's see, uh, Maria, where I recently played that. Oh my gosh, I was deep down in my cards. I was looking at wh where my cubes were in the map. How can I fulfill my armies to the best of their abilities in certain territories? But then you have games where, you know, you kind of look around the table and think, how has the game evolved into where we can all win? But there's going to be a change like Betrayal on House of the Hill where you know that there's going to be a traitor, but you're all working together. In order to make your character super awesome, the thing is, that person may turn on you in the end. You can't oh. foresee that happening, but it does happen. Okay, uh, provocative question for you all. Let us assume that you're all great players. Let us just assume that we have a panel before us. Four great players. What makes you... Each, can we just go down the line? Actually, let's start at the other end and go this way. Though. What makes you a great player? What is your quality? Oh, uh... <laughs> and you don't get to say you're not a great player. Uh, our no, I actually become a pretty good player. Uh, <laughs> it's commitment. Uh, I'm, I'm a very immersive player, and uh, and so I'm always really deep in the game, and you always see it on my face. So there's there's never a time where I'm in a game with you where uh, you don't know exactly how I'm feeling about it, and I'm not broadcasting how you can interact with it. And what does that bring to the space? Um, yeah, it, it can bring a level of excitement. Yeah. Uh, it can bring a level of um, momentum. Uh, 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 people who are reticent to get into the game, it gives them an excuse to be bigger. It's rewarding, too, yeah. if you've mm -hmm. done something and you see someone reacting to it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so validation for the rest of the players great. as well. Thank you. Chris, what makes you a great gamer? A I think um, one of my traits is listening well. So, I guess. Um, in class, maybe that's a different story. Um, but uh, listening well in terms of uh, listening to instructions uh, and really picking out on some edge cases that may appear in the game that are not, not necessarily touched upon by the rules, but now because I'm thinking like a designer, how can I turn my, the rule set into a strategy? So, when I'm learning a big game like Blood Rage, 
how do I think about all the card interactions and where can I see some edge cases I can take advantage of and that kind of turn um, helps the gameplay experience as well because if I catch on to something that other players did not see at the very moment they were like okay we're going to use that to our advantage now so it definitely gives a great direction for the, right. the game going forward didn't the designer of Bud Rage win an award or something I mean nice? you know he might be <laughs> in this room but, uh, we won't talk about him <laughs> Jason um, so what makes you a great player I am a loud, passionate, and enthusiastic player, which means that my most important trait is watching the table and seeing who needs a chance to speak and to dial myself back and push the energy at other people because I'm really good at seizing it. Um, So making space for other people who don't have a chance to speak is, I think, the most useful uh, trait I have as a player. Um, It's a GM uh, skill that translates beautifully to players, as you backseat GM as a player. (laughs) Wow. Actually, we play very similar games, and I think that a lot of what I consider my best traits as a player are involved being a miniature GM. Is I'm not running. I don't run a lot of games. I'm running a few at this convention, but I don't run a lot in my day to day life. I'm a player in two games right now, and as many one offs as I can get my grubby little hands on. But I've learned over time to interact with my GMs to be an extra set of support. So while they're worrying about running the NPCs and running all of the mechanics, I can be looking to the other players and say, "Who needs an in on this scene? How can I bring you into this game without taking over your character?" How can I have my character interact with yours? Even if it means I have to bend my character from what I originally envisioned them as. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can twist my story into making the other player's story more on screen and more what those other players are looking for, then I think that's what I'm shining the best as a player. So a bit of adaptability. Adaptability and like taking on a few of those traits that a GM has sure. of really like putting the story and the entire group's experience yeah. above my own experience, which has the added benefit of because I've been involved in my character's story and everyone else's story, it improves my experience at the table, too. Uh, I just want to underline that. Like that's, that's a really core point. Um, in, in large academic circles, that's called steering. Like, when I, I can pin my character and I'm going to steer them at something that the game needs or that other players need, or to address the central premise of the game... Um, it's a it's a it's a skill that develops over time, and it's really like the best players I've ever known have had the ability to steer. It's a really Steering. useful skill. Yeah. Yeah. You know that leads Terrible. beautifully into the next card I have, which is <laughs> what are the key skills of being a great player? So steering, steering is one of them. What else comes to mind when we think about those key skills? Uh, well, obvious. I'll go with an obvious first answer: is, is listening. You're, you're, yeah. You. Uh, if you're not, if, if you're too busy formulating uh, your internal space and not busy enough listening to what other people are bringing or what the game's bringing to you, uh, then you're not going to calibrate. Uh, well, uh, calibration would be another one too, which is really understanding where everybody is at the table, understanding where the story is, and really gearing and driving at it hard. That's almost the purpose of the listening. Yeah. Is that you, can we talk a little bit about calibration across different game types? Oh, that's What's awesome. involved in that? 
Oh, version. Because I saw everybody nod. As soon yeah. as Moira said that, I saw everybody go, oh yeah, that's a thing. That's good. Yeah. And I had to think about it more because as a board gamer, like, every experience is different. So when you're playing a game that involves rich story, like maybe Above and Below, Betrayal, House of the Hill, Tales of the Arabian Nights, that translates differently than a game like Trajan or Rouge, where you're, you know, head down. So kind of thinking about what the how the game has evolved at that point, I guess definitely you have to think about where your own personal standing is rather in the game if you're trying to win or maybe if you're trying to win as a group you kind of calibrate yourself to that, how you play in those uh, Well what, what the, you were just talking about too in terms of uh, who you're aiming yourself at competitively right. based on the skill level at the table I think would be really important in board yeah. games. Exactly but like at, and, and here's the thing about board games as well because you can't really control about who you play with unless you have a consistent play group that mm-hmm. you know that they're what their strategy are, the strategies are when it comes to certain games so maybe Mike for example aka has a certain penchant for deep heavy experience games versus someone like me I'll pick on myself who has a penchant for more lighter games and less strategy games so it's kind of like how do as a game designer how do I bring out the best in all players while trying to ease the entry point for maybe not necessarily high level strategy gamers kind of thing your point about calibration kind of ties into I think what you were saying earlier about stepping back Mm -hmm. and I feel a lot of good players and certainly when I was kind of getting into the role of being a, a, a player when I was, you know, a couple years into the hobby and really getting into it. I was very good at taking the spotlight. And I, I think I made some very good stories. I had some very interesting characters. But I'd grab the spotlight, cling onto it with my grubby little hands, and run with it as fast and as far as I could. <laughs> you, really, you really need to wash your hands. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what turned me from being a pretty good player who made some interesting stories, and I still got some very positive feedback there, to, I think, a hopefully a great player now, or at least a better player than I was before, was being able to step back Mm -hmm. and say, actually, in this narrative, the spotlight's been on me for a very long time right now. What can I do to reorient it towards someone else? And again, I feel that's not just been rewarding in terms of making the play more effective for everyone, but by making a more balanced narrative with more interesting characters, it makes my experience better, too. It also, in exactly the same way around spotlight... Mm-hmm. Um, when it's appropriate to add new stuff. I think it, it's a huge mm-hmm. thing in tabletop games, it's a big thing in LARPs too, mm-hmm. where it's like you could just forever just add, right? Yeah. And it's exciting mm-hmm. to add, but the game starts to devolve and get big and hard to manage where learning how calibration is also a matter of learning how to reincorporate yeah. and learning how to, uh, to determine when it's appropriate to put something new at the table or when it's appropriate to turn to somebody else and really focus on what they're doing it's right now. so rewarding as a player to have someone else focus and build on what you've already put in the game mm-hmm. when you have your character, your, your con- contributions to the narrative expounded upon by someone else mm-hmm. and learning to... That's something I just want everyone to do to me all the time. Mm-hmm. So learning how to do it to others yeah. is obviously key to making that happen in mm-hmm. the game. Right. Um, Sorry, Jason, I was just going to jump on uh, something, if you don't mind. Oh, go ahead. Uh, because when you start to talk about reincorporation, and so, you know, taking aside the you know, metaphysical ideas, uh, <laughs> but that, that feels like another important skill. Like, a really satisfying game is one that where you get to the end of it and you feel like that stuff you brought up in the beginning actually was instrumental to how it wrapped up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's a product of game design. I think of a game like Swords of the Master, 
which has a very explicit reincorporation mechanic. But sometimes it's just a thing that happens. Even in board games, sometimes you get that final thing, and it just turns out that that one piece all play, plays off. And it's beautiful when that yeah, happens. It's like our favorite thing in movies, right? When there's this, when there's this, been this hint, this hint, this hint, and then boom, yeah. right? Yeah. And it, it's it's when we're playing role playing games, just little things you throw out can be can be take on such significance, can be central themes over the course of play. Even silly things, like I was playing a LARP, um, a Dreamation, in February, and. In it, an offhanded joke happened about octopuses and cuttlefish, mm. and and that got rolled and rolled until it became something really emotionally touching and serious, and uh, it was it really kind of delightful. And it's and it's about listening also when you're reincorporating other people's material. That I mean, you get a a feel shiny inside when other people are like, wow, they they heard what I said and they think it's important enough to bring it back. Right. I, yeah. I played a, a tabletop role-playing game at one point where one of the other players, who was one of the less experienced players at the table, had made sort of an offhanded joke at my character's expense near the beginning of the session. Um, and I was able to sort of have my character react very huffy and not pleased with this. And we played through most of the rest of the session and not much help happened. And I, there was a moment at the end where I was able to bring back the same joke that that other character had made right at the end for basically no. the last line of the session and I could see the other player like really pleased that his his little joke his character had made had certain sort of become the the finishing line of the entire game mm-hmm. and it really it was very satisfying for me because my character was still involved but it also brought another character into that satisfaction by making it was now kind of the two of us who were finishing off the session together and that made the whole story a lot stronger um, I was going to highlight specifically within the board game realm uh, legacy games are fantastic for reincorporation. Yeah. As January affects October, and oh god, <laughs> why did we do that in January? Um, but uh, yeah, re- reincorporation is absolutely important. But on the side of calibration, I think there's one other area that is worth paying a lot of attention to, and that's emotional calibration. Mm-hmm. Specifically, finding out what are the Emotions that are currently present at the table. Um, sorry, this is not going to hit most board games. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, actually, um, well, well, to the most. same extent. Yeah. Um, a little bit more out of characters. It, character. Yeah, but finding out what are the emotional notes we're hitting, what are the emotional notes people are looking for based on body language, based on how they're acting. If you... One of those most memorable sessions that I have ever had um, involves a good friend of mine, first time I played with them uh, I'm, I was GMing and they were playing and they cried for about two hours during this uh, sad game of Sagas of the Icelanders because I knew that that person would be willing to take up the mantle of like grief and um, heavy emotional stuff and they did. They latched on to it, and that actually started a friendship for years. Wow! Um, just based off the fact that I, I was reading the table, and I could see, oh, this person would be happy if I latched on to this really, really messy blood opera family drama disaster. <laughs> and your evidence that you made them happy is that they cried for two hours. They ca- Yes, they oh, cried for two hours. And then spoke to you again. And then spoke to me again and wanted to keep playing. 
And I remember that session, and they remember that session. Fantastic. Yeah. I also think, to echo that, the reverse of that, like, one of the reasons why calibration is important is uh, it can really shatter a game when you have, like, mm. six players, and five of them are very into that emotional tone, and one of them is being goofy. Uh, and sometimes that can work, uh, but it's like knowing when and how much to step away from things. Sometimes uh, putting in a lovely moment of uh, comedic irony or something in the middle of a heavy game might be a good thing, but you have to know your table and know where they're at and what everybody's in the mood for. Right. Um, at the same time, it was another point I wanted to bring up as another skill that players have to have. Uh, part of stepping away, well, they're stepping away in character and while you're sort of in the game, and there's also a sort of stepping away that some players need to do out of the game. Um, so I think this ties in especially well with board games, because yeah. there's always this tendency when you've got a team of like four pretty darn good players and one newbie of the dog pile, the everyone wanting to go in and explain everything to this new player because they're very excited about the game, and you know who doesn't want to kind of explain their favorite game to all of their friends. Uh, but I think that, again, the stepping back and realizing when you are needed as a GM's assistant, as a, as a, as a new player assistant, and when you aren't needed, right. because someone else is already doing the job, can be is very important to making sure everyone's actually having a good game. Exactly. And that's a lot. I, I mean, that's the alpha gamer experience that we have in some cooperative games. I know that then we can't always say in the rule book, okay, player A, who's clearly dominating the atmosphere of the game, shouldn't talk for a while unless, you know, some some game mechanic allows that. But really, it's what Emily said, it's how, like, the new person, I'm usually the new person when it comes to games, frankly enough, uh, but when I game, uh, play a game of Pandemic, I'm sort of removing myself away from the, the how the game's playing. I may be excited about, okay, we're near the final outbreak, what do we have to do in order to survive? But the thing is, it's like, if we're shouting all over the place and one person is feeling out the uh, left over and say like hey I exist too kind of thing we had to kind of step away from that whole like okay let's bring everyone back to the table let's uh, regroup and recalibrate in order to to make this the best game of pandemic we've ever played together so we talked about what calibration what do we call this last one detachment the ability to kind of step back I was just going with anti-dogpiling. Anti-dogpiling. <laughs> I, I don't have a good accent. Anti-dogpiling ordinance. Uh, uh, what was the other one? Well, emotional calibration was one. Yeah. Of, yeah. Reincorporation. Uh, reincorporation. Reincorporation. That was it. I'm sorry. I couldn't I hear Mario just speaking. Uh, how do you get better at these skills? Like, assume, Let's assume that we have now produced our list of all the skills that great players have, and that was very non-problematic. <laughs> uh, so here I am. I want to be a great player. How do I get better at this, this kind of stuff? So when you get better at everything, you just do it. You do it and do it and do it and you invest the hours, right? And, and you do it intentionally and intentfully. And also, asking for feedback is a great thing. Tell me, what, the best way to become a new player is to ask people what they think of you as a player. It's a vulnerable place and people will tell you. It's, um, in terms of practicing it, one thing I've found very helpful is even with the skills that in an ideal situation are completely invisible, like reincorporation or sort of reading the table, if you're not at the point where you can make them invisible, you're allowed to just ask them, ask for them mm -hmm. in, out of character in perfectly normal terms. If you can't read if someone's feeling okay, you can just step out of character for a while and say, are you feeling okay? If you're not sure how someone's going to react to you reincorporating something they've brought in, you can step out of character and say, you know, would you like me to bring this back in here? 
or even like between sessions for a longer campaign, I've gone into I've gone up to other players and said, "Hey, I'm not really sure what you need for you to be happy with your character right now. Can you can we work it out together?" Because I think in an ideal world, that's something you can do very organically at the game table. But um, I, I mean, I, I'm apparently a great player. We've all agreed on this. And it's, still, <laughs> it's certainly not something I can always do at the table. So I think that practicing by really sort of figuring out what you'd want in an ideal world when it's calm and you're not actually playing and you don't need to worry about your mechanics or winning the game or writing something and you're just really thinking it over and then taking that calm, quiet environment and just talking out of character with your other players about what they need and what you need and what you could do together can be a really helpful way of practicing those skills and getting into the habit of those skills before you bring them to the table. Um, so... I am designing within the indie role-playing game space primarily. And we have a tendency of designing games that are very focused and good at teaching very specific skills. So, for instance, there is a game that is currently available in the marketplace, Headspace. And one of the key (coughs) skills in order to play the game well is actually to express and role-play certain emotions at certain times. Because, uh, effectively, if you don't express emotions, then the GM hits you with a club. So, expressing emotions is the winning strategy. Um, So, it means that it trains you to be attentive on setting up emotional triggers for other people so they can express things. Being open and playing openly for yourself in such a way that gives momentum to the story because that is the optimal solution. So picking specific games that focus on these elements. Lady Blackbird is really good at reincorporation. It's the the game itself is focused on that skill set. So you can pick specific games to train up some of these specific mm-hmm. skills. Or even something like Fate where like aspect tagging mm. with each other, you have to work together as a team, so you're kind of forced to by the mechanics to sort of work your character's actions into someone else's character's actions. Yeah, that's uh, very much a play to lose. Um, well, it, it specifically, there's a, a series of mechanics which are you get rewarded if you do something that screws you, yourself over. This is extremely useful as a skill. Um, anyone who's ever played it's Fiasco, <laughs> yeah, well, that, yeah, that is LARP. I mean, <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyone who's ever played Fiasco, that's how it, the game works. Um, and being able to uh, detach yourself from the need to win procedurally because you can do something that's more dramatically appropriate and makes the game more interesting for other people is extremely useful. So here, here's my I was just gonna, here's my problem. I'm super shy and I don't like to talk. You've probably noticed that about me thus far. So I, I would be terrified to ask somebody how I was doing. I wouldn't know how to judge somebody's emotions. I like these skills you're talking about are way over my head. I, how can I? But I want I want that. How can I get better at that? I mean, I think that doing it. If I can jump in, sorry, uh, I talk a lot. Uh, I think that um, doing it sort of out of character can be an easier way to jump into that. Um, Like, I've got players who I can't really easily talk to about that at the table, but I can do it by text message or Skype conversation afterwards, and that can sometimes be an easier way to sort of 
ease into those conversations. Um, but I also think that if you're a new player who's still kind of getting used to speaking at the table, um, not universally necessarily, but that might also be a case where you're currently someone the other player should be making sure to lift up. If you're not quite ready yet to be reading the rest of the table, and if you're not quite ready yet to be speaking confidently on your own, um, then other players should be, especially if you've got some other more advanced players at the table, they should be helping you to come into your own as a player who's confident with yourself before you're necessarily going to be expected to learn the skills of helping others at the table at the same time. And I think, again, with things like conversations afterwards, with other people engaging you, or with you engaging in an environment where you're more comfortable engaging, like um, like text or just a conversation afterwards over beers or whatever is best for you and your group, um, you can kind of learn some of those skills simultaneously. And I've certainly had players who kind of came into our group and sort of raised both up simultaneously. But especially with new players, I, I don't expect someone who's still just learning how to play for themselves to also be immediately the best at the table at helping everyone else up too. Um, there is, uh, in people's socialization outside of games, when I'm not good at something, I mentor, or I, I become a mentee. Um, there is a, there's a lesson to be learned in that in games, where it's like, it's very hard to say, judge me as a player, tell me what I'm doing wrong, uh, or tell me what I could do better. It's not as hard to say as, how can I support your play? What's the thing I can give you? Because the more you're giving to someone, the more valuable you become in their social space, the more valuable you become in their game space. And so, starting out, sometimes it's easier to serve other people's play, and they will start to incorporate you into it because you're serving the play. And as you do that, you build a network in the course of the game, and you learn those skills while partnering with other people. I think that's a great strategy to handle. Are there other activities outside, like away from the table, that can help you acquire these kind of skills? Improv. Improv. Yeah. yeah. Improv. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, again, on the opposite side, for very shy people, um, uh, freeform role playing. If you, uh, it, it's a, I guess it's again kind of like trying other games. But um, it's another form of role play that's um, it's very rules light, so it relies a lot more on negotiation between players. Mm -hmm. It's kind of how I learned to role play. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that was another thing. It's it's almost improv-y, but a lot more story focused. But yeah, absolutely improv, like simple improv exercises. Mm -hmm. Anything else that comes to mind as far as outside uh, activities? Um, honestly, I found um, some board game is very useful for tabletop <laughs> improv. Like, there are some, uh, like Gloom, like Once, once Upon, upon a Time, time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, or sort of board game RPGs, like uh, Microscope and stuff, like things that are totter, teetering a line where you, okay, yeah. you don't need to have the full experience of making a character, right. but you get some of the same like lessons and some of the same experience. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, um, Clue. Oh, yeah. it, it, is the, it is the best... Yeah. Clue and diplomacy are so good. They're so good gateway drugs. Yeah, <laughs> uh, into, our, into our community, um, because yeah, it's like oh yeah, speaking funny voices, stab each other in the back. Right. Yeah, anything that can get you talking with friends about a story, um, and speaking up and giving your own input, whether that's improv acting exercises or simpler games that have that kind of improv-y storytelling feel, yeah. or I guess less speaking, but like telling stories with your friends or co-writing with your friends, right. I think are great training exercises. 
Now, one particularly useful resource, uh, I think it's pretty much just within the realm of um, tabletop RPGs, uh, would be actual play recordings, uh, particularly on podcasts. Because being able to listen to people playing a game will tell teach you an incredible amount on what decisions people will make given certain stimuli. You don't get the full experience, but you can get a lot. And you can see, you can hear where things go off the roads and people make mistakes, uh, or when people knock it out of the park. And you can sort of analyze that and learn from that because every table is different. So being able to experience tables of strangers that are really skilled uh, is incredibly useful. Um, and actually on the same point, um, playing with different groups. If you're used to only playing with a single group and you're all still kind of learning, then jumping into a, or even if you're all still really good, then jumping into something like a, a con game like you're going to be seeing here or just managing to want to do a one-shot with some other group that you've met wherever can be really useful at seeing new styles of play and what other people do. And, like, I, I played fairly recently with a brand new group, and we had one player who was very competitive in a way that... Like, it was a tabletop role-playing game. There was no way to win. But she was very competitive and really wanted to just grab everything and have her character oh, succeed at everything. <laughs> uh, I'm sure someone's met this person uh, in many incarnations. Um, she wasn't a problem player. Like, she still wanted to... She wasn't trying to really, like, make it worse for other people, but she was, just, she was way more competitive than I'd ever met before. And meeting her and playing with her gave me a whole new insight into other things I could be doing as a player to improve my game. Um, so a bit of variety. Yeah. A variety of game types, variety of game groups. That really helps, yeah. sounds like. It's helping. And there's other things, too, that are just out in the general world around uh, skill building. So things like the Toastmasters and stuff will get you used to talking and addressing subjects and reincorporation. Like uh, the idea of building speeches is, is based in a lot of uh, a lot of the same things and getting used to being social and out in front. Um, lots of different opportunities like that. Or volunteer efforts, that's another thing. Working with kids is great because you're always going to have the confidence, right? And working with kids will give you actually really refined ways of, of socialization and watching and paying attention because they're so challenging and so off the wall, right? So running, you know, contact your local, if you want really want to build your skills, especially as a GM, uh, uh, which is this is not the how to be a great jam panel, but uh-huh. being a player and being a jam are not so different. Um, contact your local library and, and start a Saturday group, and you know get seven year olds or twelve year olds uh, and and play with them until you feel more confident. And I think when you've been running something for a long time, then you get into as a player and you'll step up. The um, the Toastmasters things actually reminds me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like my secret as a player. I rehearse my characters' speeches. Like, my character comes across in the game as very... I play a very charismatic, good-speaking character right now. Um, and I don't always speak good. Uh, so, uh, I will... When I'm not playing, I will think up potential scenarios that might happen in the next game, and I will rehearse what my character might say and do. Um, and obviously, I don't usually actually give the speech I planned, because they're games. Nothing survives the first ten minutes of the game. But just... The exercise, it's basically an improv exercise I'm just doing on my own, mm-hmm. is that I'm, I'm getting into, I probably look like a total nerd when I'm doing this in my apartment alone. But, nerd! Uh, <laughs> caught me, it's like... This is a room full of yeah. people who will judge you for... Uh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, 
But like I've talked to a lot of players, and none of them ever thought of like rehearsing their character as if they were a, um, as if it was a play or something. But I'm I'm really curious. Yeah. Do you rehearse your character speeches? Good. Because I sure do. Great player. Yeah, that's like yeah. part of the fun of gaming at all is yeah. like the imagine between like, sessions yeah, where I like imagine all the things that I'm going like to do. Like the cool character is going to do next. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you've got to definitely like detach yourself from the idea that this is definitely going to happen because nine times out of ten yeah, it won't. Yeah. But you'll totally steal some good lines. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if you don't, then when it becomes impossible, you'll just tell all the players about that cool thing you would have done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially when it comes to big box games, when you play certain games, if you play them over and over again, you certain you grab a certain meta. Say, okay, I know how these cards work. What can I grab first before everyone else? But then you realize that, uh oh, this is the middle of the game, and this card hasn't shown up yet. Uh oh, this changed my strategy. How can I totally evolve into something that I don't want to play at this moment, but I had to play in order to win? So that's a good point about thinking about what from game to game. And from the same game to the same game, when if you're continuing a long campaign like in an RPG or playing um, uh, Cosmic Encounter, sometimes over, like where do you start the meta for yourself? And if you can grab that meta too. The meta. Yeah, the meta. The meta. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's always been a big piece of gaming for me. Is is the meta? Mm-hmm. I love to write backstories, or I love to write behind the scenes stuff. Uh, naturally, I'm a writer. Does that play into it? Am I an outlier on that? Or is that something that brings uh, good gaming forward for a player? Uh, I think it's a mix. I think that um, I think there are some games you can bring too much uh, meta to the game. And then I think there are some games where all your internal stuff will come flowing out of you and make the game better. Uh, it's just a matter of calibration. I think to... Um Meta and backstories a great place to keep in mind things like calibration and like um, bringing other players back into the fold. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the the most limiting things I think a player can do is write an entire novel backstory for their character and be really set on you know these are the four other people my character has really close ties to before I even start the game. This is exactly their personality and they're going to act like this regardless. And um, so I guess it's a little bit similar to having like an exact strategy you're going to play in a board game. Yeah, yeah. It's very it it sets you in stone right away, and it doesn't mm-hmm. let you react to what else you're going to get as soon as you get there because you're going to have this huge plethora of um, like tags and hooks you can draw from the other characters. And I think if you get too set in what you do before the game starts, then you can end up with a character who is very much an island. Right. And it makes it for. If you've got a whole bunch of players who can do that, you can end up with a, a campaign of just four separate stories where they just all happen to hang out together. <laughs> I also think there's the, the there's the meta that is the backstory, and then mm-hmm. there's the meta that is the future story, right? So mm-hmm. we all spend this time. Part of fun of meta is is where is the story going? I can see all these possible solutions. Yeah. When I was not such a good player, as we all have agreed, that I am a very good player. Um, <laughs> when I was way back when, uh, I frequently I would get very into the forecast and sometimes get too attached to a yeah. forecast. And then you start to drive, sure. try to drive a game. Oh, yeah. um, and that can be kind of disruptive. Yeah, uh, I still have that problem sometimes. Yeah. And so like learning to play in future possibilities or past possibilities and have the ability to discard them when they're no longer good is really an important part of that. Yeah. And specifically, the issue comes in where my forecast and your forecast yeah, no, clash each yeah. other. <laughs> that, and so if I know what your forecast is, yeah. mm-hmm. That helps 
to know, hey, can we synergize these and make our yeah. both of them work? Or should I just drop mine because yours is far more awesome? Yeah. <laughs> I had a, a game very recently. Um, I think it was the last one I played, actually, outside of this convention, mm-hmm. where we'd had sort of at the end of the last session sort of a hint of what was going to come. And I thought that this whole scene was going to happen in a very particular way. There was going to be these people present, and there were going to be these characters present, and this was how I'm going to have to deal with the situation. I, had, I, I thought I knew what was going to happen. And five minutes into the next game, I figured out that was all completely wrong. Um, and that there was a whole bunch of different characters present, and the entire social media was completely different, and the challenges I was going to be facing were basically not completely the opposite, but there were a lot of different challenges than what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So basically, I thought it was going to be a quiet sit-down dinner with me and four close friends, and it ended up being a party of 700 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... I had a moment there at the beginning that I was a little bit like, you know, oh, I, I had all these really cool plans. I got a speech planned out. I rehearsed it in the shower. And, like, <laughs> it was going to be so cool. Uh, and there was definitely a, a moment of like, okay, step back. This is also going to be really cool. Drop your previous plans and play with what's on the table because mm-hmm. that's going to be, that's the game we're actually playing now. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left. So I thought we'd just go down the line and it's, as, as great players, specifically how to welcome new players, especially players who may have not felt welcome in you know, some scenarios in, in the gaming world one way or another, what can you do as a great player to help those players feel welcome? Do you want to get started? Do you want to? Sure. Uh, get to them, know them as people uh, and as much as you're going to get to know them as their characters. Um, uh, you can't always tell what a person's like by the characters they play, and knowing them personally will do well. Um, and going out of your way, um, um, uh, wel- welcoming people to the group, asking them if they have questions, playing host, um, and, uh, and, and steering towards their needs in the course of game, because if you're good at those kind of things, they need some time, and if they feel spotlight, they'll feel like a part of the community. Yeah, especially if you're playing a board game night, especially as a host, um, you can break out certain strategy games that, hey, this is the main course, but then if you have new players uh, going involved with your game night, you may necessarily not want to play those games. So as an avid collector of board games, I always keep a handy list of games that always break out with certain groups because they're translatable to both new players and old players alike. Uh, so uh, it's it's great that you can structure a night around games that evoke a certain um, experience for everyone and not necessarily pinpointing someone who not necessarily good at games or even an entry-level gamer sort of thing. Thank you. Um, for me, as a good player, the most important thing to make it feel welcoming is to specifically and intentionally devote most of my efforts to setting other people up awesome. Mm -hmm. Just giving them prompts, giving them problems. Hey, I wonder if there's any academic research that could help on this academic character. And then just constantly setting up in that way. Um, It also makes it a great game for you because they'll do the same thing for you and everyone wins. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just getting people involved by making it, getting them, uh, giving them the spotlight. Great. Yeah, I think those are all really good points, like getting to know your people, picking the appropriate game for the appropriate audience, and like setting people up for Spotlight. Um, another thing I try and do is be very clear and explicit in communicating <coughs> a lot of the sort of social norms that experienced gamers already understand. 
So instead of just sort of asking someone to come up with a character, you give them very clear instructions for what kind of character is appropriate and what kind of um, what kind of questions they should be answering about their character, what kind of ca- kinds of questions they don't have to answer yet. Um, there's also things like um, to avoid the dogpiling thing. I make very clear, okay, new player, I want you to pick one person in this room who's really wants to explain the rules to you. Pick one of them, and that's the only person who's going to be explaining the rules to you. Everyone else has to to shut up unless you specifically, new player, ask them to explain something. Um, And giving that player, A, the choice of whoever they're most comfortable with, but B, also making it very clear to them that um, there are etiquettes in place for sort of what should be happening, and it's okay to ask. You you can ask if you've got real problems, and here's your your go-to person. Um... I think making clear all those things that we sort of take for granted as older players and trying to communicate them clearly. Often that we is, use as a marker of status. Yeah, exactly. Like, I know all the rules. Yeah, I know all the rules. Or, you know, yeah, of course I can make a character. I can make a character in my sleep. Or, um, you know, we don't really need to talk about, like, what to do when, when we're uncomfortable at the table because we all, we all know. We all know just to, you know, tell the GM something and kind of step out of the, ta- the room. But, like, new players don't always know these things. It can be a very complicated and intimidating hobby. So the more things you can make clear and also the more things you can kind of give them one person who is as, as least intimidating as possible to them to kind of go to and make it clear that it's okay to ask this person questions, it's okay to be confused, um, can I think give, a, give them a bit of a less intimidating welcome. Uh, also, just to echo what you just said, and treat their first, eventually, everybody new will make a bump with the game because socially you're conflict-wise be really mindful to treat those bumps softly and well and communicatively yeah. and just say it's okay to make mistakes yeah. um, yes. but let's course correct a little bit yeah. right. well I'd like to thank these great players uh, I didn't get any questions from you so I hope you're not sitting there with questions eating you up uh, I'm sure uh, folks will be happy to be stopped on their way out and mobbed by their adoring fans <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure you create space. Thank you. Thanks for- Thank you guys.